Okay. Oh, we got a good one today. Yeah. Welcome to Three Dudes in a Dog. Yes. We're unionized. <laughs> yes. So this week we are talking well, we about... We are fucking not. <laughs> talking about the documentary from Brett Harvey, a Canadian filmmaker. Yes. Uh, called The Union, The Business Behind Getting High. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were lucky enough to have Brett uh, join us. Yes. Fantastic uh, interview. Yes. Super insightful guy. Um, you know, it's, it's and it's just good. a treat to have a, a Canadian filmmaker as, yeah. you know, Canadian podcast yeah. uh, creators. Yeah. yeah. It's also fun to have a fellow Canadian there. We could be like, man, the U.S. is fucked up, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it is pretty crazy. <laughs> there was not a so whole lot fun. of sympathizing going on. We need on. to get an American to be like, America's fucked, right? And they're like, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, yeah. Where's yeah. Joe Rogan? Yeah. yeah. One day, one yeah. day, Christian. Yeah. He needs to make a documentary first. That's how you only get interviewed on this show. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, the union behind getting high. It's uh, So, basically, it's about uh, the illegal marijuana. This is before uh, marijuana was legalized. Yeah, like 17 years ago, he said. Yeah, so 2000, 2004, 2005, it came yeah. out. Um, so, yeah. So, Which this is was obviously done before legalization, even in the States. Like, I mm-hmm. believe Colorado was the first place. Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't think fully, it was that early yet, though. Even. To fully, no, it no was Colorado's that. only been legal for like a handful of years. Yeah, yeah. so it was before that. that. So this documentary is basically about the illegal uh, marijuana trade uh, mm-hmm. in BC. Yeah, uh, I think they said the documentary is like a seven billion yeah. dollar business, yeah. Yeah. and just how like even though it's illegal, it was like kind of globally known like you say bc bud and like oh yeah everyone knows what that is yeah yeah i actually like i know what bc bud is and i did prior to this but there wasn't actual bc weed down here i don't think um i think it's just one of those things that it's like criminality yeah yeah it's like being like yeah we got the coke that killed len bias and like (laughs) how the fuck are you supposed to know that it's just a marketing ploy um so i I have a buddy whose uh, uncle lives out in bc and like he would literally mail him like pot all the time. Oh, okay, so that's so listen. crazy. Yeah, so he he grows out in like the mountains. Um, and this was when it like back in the day. Oh yeah, this was way before legalization. Oh, like that's so fucked up. That, and, like, yeah, li- literally would mail it through the mail. Yeah, <laughs> there had to be people in the mail that were like, whatever, who cares? Damn, that looks like yeah. good shit. Yeah, yeah. Man, or, that, that package smells real good. Yeah, or send if, it to he, if he drove down uh, to visit. Yeah. Um. He would. Uh, he would bring like a, a garbage bag full in, a, in oh his trunk. God. Yeah. That's so That's awesome. Insane. Yeah. I think it was definitely just a moniker down here to make sales. Yeah. I don't. Because I don't know how you would like cross reference it. Right. Like now it would be so yeah. much easier. Well, you'd have to have such a direct link story. Like mm-hmm. what you just told. Like, sure. Yeah. There's no other way. Yeah. 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 But yeah. So uh, we had a fantastic interview. Um. So we'll uh, we'll play that right now with Brett. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, so there's three of us here. So there's myself, uh, one of our co-hosts, Mitch, and Christian Hello. as well. Hello. Hi, guys. How, how are you guys all doing? Good, good. How are you? So Good, good. First off, uh, you know, thanks for joining us. This is uh, a real treat, uh, especially a, a fellow Canadian and uh, Canadian filmmaker. Yes. Um, you know, uh, we don't get to, to talk to a lot of you guys. So Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, are you guys out? Uh, you're, are you in Winnipeg area? No, we're uh, so just about two hours east of Toronto. So I don't know if you know where Tynemega oh, okay. Reserve is. I, I actually don't. No, 
So it's uh, it's like the pot uh, capital of Ontario. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, that's appropriate. Yeah, we're just uh, we're just west of them. So. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, awesome. you guys you guys picked an interesting an interesting film out of all the films to uh, to review. It's just so old and. I had to revisit some of the uh, memories in my mind there. That's right. Uh, yeah, so what it actually took to do that. I'll just give you kind of like a rundown of what we uh, what we do. Uh, so essentially, okay. we just randomly take a uh, uh, pick of a doc. We have a bunch of names of docs in uh, in a jar. Uh, so every week, we just grab a random uh, name and uh, we watch it. So uh, your uh, your doc was the the last one we picked. The one before that was a doc from 1929. So a huge range of uh, of titles. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. I thought mine was a while back. <laughs> <laughs> Holy. But, wow. Yeah. So we've all watched it and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a great watch, especially now seeing it, you know, the juxtaposition of, uh, you know, it being done while weed wasn't legal, uh, compared to now mm-hmm. where today with mm-hmm. legalization. Um, so just kind of give us a rundown of, uh, you know, who you are and, you know, what got you into this? Uh, well, my name is Brett Harvey. Uh, I'm a Canadian director and writer uh, and cinematographer. I tend to shoot uh, all, all the documentaries that I do. And that kind of stems from, I, I did a bit of uh, directing of photography before I actually turned into a full-fledged director of uh, feature docs. So I would shoot on various ones for uh, CBC or... Uh, you know, whatever I, I would do behind the scenes documentaries on the making of films. Uh, one in particular that ended up being a, a bigger one was the uh, one we did on the Snow Walker, which uh, was up in the north. Right. You know, attempting to make a feature film in the middle of the tundra there in the summer, which was a crazy experience with tundra buggies. And what you wouldn't realize is epidemic uh, mosquitoes and, and various elements, uh, polar bears various things like that. We had a polar bear run into the shoot one of the days. They had to tranquilize it. And Jesus. Yeah, so I <laughs> yeah, I started in that kind of area. I dabbled in shooting uh, some reality shows for a period of time, but lost my taste for that rather quickly. And then, um, funny enough, the film that, that you guys reviewed, The Union, The Business Beyond Getting High, was my first stab at doing uh, a full-fledged documentary feature where I was directing and writing and doing that aspect of it. And uh, that was back in the day where a lot of people probably don't remember these words, but it was standard definition right. Ooh, <laughs> right. before we had HD. And uh, I actually specifically remember my business partner at the time and I, we had purchased what we thought was our big long-term camera because HD hadn't actually really hit the scene when we first started shooting that box. We'd spent, you know, roughly 60 grand of our life savings on a, on a, uh, on a full-fledged camera and an SDX. And then within a year and a half, when we were done the film, it had dropped to, to that it wasn't even being used anymore because standard depth had transitioned over to HD. Right. And we had to give that camera back for about $12,000 in credit at the store. We had previously bought it for 60 grand from. Oh, that was wow. within a year and a half. So word of advice, do not invest in video cameras as a uh, business um, opportunity. <laughs> you right. will not probably do very well. They're, they're about as useful as a car when 
investing for those purposes. Nice. But, uh, yeah, so uh, the actual film itself, though, um, Adam Scorgi, who's the producer on it, uh, he was actually a, a model in New York, and he was moving back to Kelowna at the time because his dad had passed away and he had inherited a nightclub. And when he came back, uh, this was in Kelowna, and at that time, we're talking about, I believe, 2005, maybe 2004 time period. Kelowna was the hotbed of BC, and BC Bud was a very well-known name at that point as far as marijuana, because marijuana was illegal everywhere still, and mm-hmm. BC was producing really high-quality marijuana and, and uh, huge amounts of it. I think in Kelowna alone, they had over... You know, they'd clocked over a thousand grow ups just within that community. Wow. Um, so <clears throat> Adam's friends at all were, were in the growing industry. So he was kind of at this point where he didn't know if he wanted to get into filmmaking or go the other route, which was pretty lucrative. And rather than doing that, he decided he wanted to do uh, a film about it. And he, he, he had never done film before. So he was looking for a director to basically take that, the reins of that aspect. And uh, he was searching around, and finally he came across me uh, through through other directors who I had been shooting uh, their docs for, and I knew that I had wanted to actually get into directing. So, and let's see, you got to remember too, at the time, marijuana was still very taboo. Nobody really wanted to touch right. it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, at least from the aspect of uh, the approach that we ended up taking with it. And uh, I think Graft, the Woody Harrelson, the one where Woody Harrelson is narrating, I think that was really the only well-known doc out at the time. And it is, it, you know, it was it was good in its own right, but it had a specific audience. It took kind of more of a, uh, for lack of a better word, a hippie kind of look at it. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was still rational and, and made a lot of sense and opened up a lot of ideas. But. So Adam's intention was to originally to kind of do an expose on just the underground industry. And then I took it on. And when I started researching and uh, doing, you know, started doing the writing and figuring out how I actually wanted to, uh, to do the film, I started un- uncovering this past of uh, how kind of insane the entire drug war was, especially in regards to marijuana of all things. You know, and if you had looked at its history before, they had started their war on it. It was, it was even crazier. Like how, how often it was used as medicine. And, uh, right. it was, you know, hemp, hemp was a big part of it too, where hemp, uh, obviously you've seen it in the film, but hemp, you can't get high from hemp and it was used for right. all these resources, but then it got lumped in with marijuana due to the fact that, um, you know, DuPont and all these various synthetic type things were coming out at that period of time. And they didn't want the competition of the strongest natural fiber on earth to be playing into it. So the government at the time, you know, had become very influenced by that. And so all these things opened up where I was just like, what the hell is going on? And I remember specifically going to Adam and said, I, I think this has got to turn into something much more. And, uh, uh, if, if we want to blow this up, we have to open up all these aspects. And that's where, uh, basically started going to, you know, um, former chiefs of police, like people who actually work and uh, whose job it was to put people away or uh, Harvard professors. We had Dr. Lester Grinspoon at the time. We, we basically just started going to all these professors of universities in various areas, whether it was political science, uh, sociology, um, psychiatry, 
or just straight up medical practitioners. And this greater picture started opening up of, wow, this is, this is kind of absurd. And that took the film to kind of a new level where it was, uh, it was exploring the possibility that maybe we need to actually shift the entire social conscious awareness of how we approach this. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started. And then it, it spiraled, well, the spiral kind of insinuates it went down. It kind of <laughs> shot up from there. And uh, a lot was learned in how to do documentaries, how to gain interviews, how to um, basically open up avenues in every area from distribution to whatever. Because that documentary, we, we did that in the basement of a house, that one, Stephen's parents' house. We, were in, we still remember when Stephen and I had finished the film and we brought Adam in to watch and we're all sitting there in chairs in the basement watching it going, Hey, this actually, this might be something here. (laughs) Yeah. And saying that like, uh, all four films that you've directed have, uh, you know, had some critical acclaim to them, uh, you know, awards won, um, lots of big, uh, film festivals. Um, so, you know, you started off on the right foot and kept going. Yeah. And it's interesting because those are all grassroots. Uh, the way where we got to with those films, even <clears throat> even with Inmate, to some extent, where you know we we got our first deal signed with a studio, but that came after after the film was long done. Like we had we'd still gone through the process of doing film festivals and winning the awards before you know actually getting signed by that. So, and even the second film, The Culture High, which was it built off of the union. I didn't want to do another film on marijuana at that point. I was kind of done with it. I was like, geez, if people don't get the idea from this first one, like there's not much more I can say at this point. Yeah. But then we just kept getting people writing in going, Hey, you know, new stuff's happened. Hey, there's these other people you could talk to. We really want to see number two. And at the time we were like, okay, well, you know, prove it, prove it that you guys really want one. And so we did a Kickstarter at nice. the time. Okay. And, um, we aimed for, I think we were, we needed a, a gap bridged of about $190,000, something like that. So we put it out there and did the Kickstarter route and then they blew right through that and they gave us 240 grand. Wow. Beautiful. And, um, which, yeah, at the time was, uh, I believe at the time was for Canada, it broke the record as far as documentaries, uh, for, for Kickstarter. Wow, so I'm sure that's been blown blown out of the water since then. But at the time, you know, we're talking uh, quite a few years ago. That that was a big deal. Yeah. And then with the culture high, it, it was it was through what we had learned with the union, which was um, basically the the quality of the questioning and doing the interviews. When you would get an interview with somebody uh, who was kind of a, had respect within the community that would then avalanche into a bunch more interviews because that person would then recommend you to the other people. And that's sure. how, mm-hmm. you know, we, uh, I think we started, it was actually Todd McCormick was one of the, the first ones. And then it was through Todd. So Todd had had cancer since he was really, uh, really young and had marijuana was the only thing that had helped him. And then he ended up in prison for five years because he had a medical grow up. Uh, in LA and this back in the time, this is when the feds were still going really hard mm-hmm. at grow up. Didn't matter whether it was medical or not. And Todd was in, in uh, prison and he kept, he basically spent the majority of that in solitary confinement because they kept finding 
marijuana within the system because it was the only medication that would help with his afflictions, all the things that he had going on with his body. So he's a hardcore dude. And he was friends with like Bill Maher, um, Joe Rogan. He, he was respected within the community, but not just the celebrity community, but within the actual legit me- medical community. And that's, right. so that's how we got access to Lester Greenspoon. Or, um, you know, when we went and interviewed uh, the chief of police of Seattle, Norm Stamper at the time, he was actually at the time kind of a big deal. He was on CNN because he was one of the only police officers speaking out about stuff. We went and did his interview, and then through him, he recommended us Jack Cole, who's also in the film, who was a for- former narcotics agent. And so anyways, that's how the, the interviews just got bigger and better and more people. And then by the time we got to the culture high, we had built on the respect of the union and what it had been capable of doing. And now we were at the level where, well, rather than just the chief of police of Seattle, which was awesome and huge, but we got the chief of police in Los Angeles, which is one of the biggest cities in the world. Absolutely. And then we got former drug czars or, you know, Richard Branson suddenly was, we were able to do an interview with him and, uh, and, and various people all through the UK and stuff. So yeah, we just kept, kept doing that and, and learned a lot. And through this grassroots kind of method, uh, all the films have, have done fairly well. So Beautiful. It's, uh, it doesn't make you rich, though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, that's for sure. <laughs> but and like you mentioned, uh, having uh, police officers and chiefs of police uh, um, interviewed, you know, it kind of brings a little bit of a, I don't want to say credibility, but kind of brings that other side where you know people uh, you know who don't know anything about it see it and say, oh, geez, these police officers, these guys are supposed to be the ones against it, mm-hmm. but they're uh, they're lending some legitimacy to uh, to this argument. Um, is that kind of what you were thinking? Well, 100%. And and to be honest, in in the initial thought behind the Indian, and that that would be the, within the title as well, the business behind getting high, I just wanted to look at it from the aspect of a business sense of, Mm -hmm. does this economically even make sense? Like, do we, do we lose more economically by maintaining this war? Or what if we transitioned it into, um, you know, a legalization model where you could basically siphon off taxes and put those back in their healthcare system or education or whatever you deem necessary at that point. But, but through that, um, it, it, there was, it got hit on two avenues. One was definitely the police where we had the police sitting there going, it doesn't even make sense to us. Like we, we, the, the type of people we're having to arrest and Norm Stamper in particular, he was talking about some of the arrests he had to do and the college kids and he had them, the college kid in the back of his car and one of the arrests and the college kid was asking for Doritos, literally. And he's going, what the hell? Why am I bringing this kid to a, a, a metal cell over this? Like, what, what has he actually done? Why are we going to be putting him away like that? And then uh, Jack Cole, he had learned really early on because he, he had uh, worked under the Nixon administration and they had, they had actually sent them out with the sole purpose of look, if they're not smoking it around you within these circles in the, in the colleges, you start handing it out yourself. And every single person that it gets handed to, all of those people get arrested. Wow. And that's where he also started observing that that's how they would shut down um, protests back right. then. Because yeah. the majority of the protests were hippies who were, who were protesting the Vietnam War. And well, the easiest way to break that up is find something illegal about what they're doing and then nail them on that. Nothing to do with what they're protesting. And then mm-hmm. you don't have to have a a protest anymore. And of course, you know, the hippie generation was 
who's smoking pot heavily. So there was that aspect. But then the other aspect that came into view was the growers were telling us that they wanted it kept illegal and they were the ones that were going to jail. <laughs> and it yeah. was like, whoa. And the reason behind that, obviously, was that that kept the prices really high. It kept mm-hmm. them rich. And so they didn't want it legalized because, of course, as soon as you legalize it, it rips it out of the hands of, yeah. of um, that side of things. And then, of course, there was also the third aspect where we had a professor from UBC and various professors who were getting really, really frustrated about the modeling of the funding that was going to research where they were seeing all this potential with marijuana, but the way it was set up because of its illegality in both countries and more harshly, I guess I would say in the United States, um, was that no funding was going to this plant that could legitimately be helping millions and millions of people, probably more so than, than the pharmaceuticals that were out. And with, you know, very minor side effects in comparison to what, what you received from those. So, yeah, it became this kind of like, what the fuck is going on type of thing. And and I think, so the film, The Union, it hit at, at the right time um, with that stuff. And then you, you see, saw that play out when we got invited to, to play the film uh, on Parliament Hill for senators and, and members of Parliament to cool. basically educate them on the ramifications of the drug war at the time. So you got to think what it was like. like I, I think that was, it was a few, might've been a year or two later because it was after the film had already kind of been out and making its way around the world. And then somehow, uh, I, I think it was Erwin Kotler, who was a former attorney general of Canada. Um, his son somehow had watched it. His son was really anti-marijuana at one point. And then he watched the film and he, he had that kind of awakening moment. And then he went to his dad and was like, whoa, what, there's something really strange in the way we're doing this stuff. Yeah. And I believe, I, I could be wrong, but I believe then Erwin brought it to the, the Liberal Party at the time. They're the ones that invited us. But then we had also, we had the, uh, the Conservatives there. And I believe there was NDP, some NDP members. And we basically were rolling up on... Parliament Hill with this drug film basically saying, hey, you guys are doing this all wrong. It's moronic, like change your ways kind of thing. And then uh, after it, there was a really good discussion. And I I, I could be wrong, but I believe they ended up uh, basically asking for a bunch of DVDs at the time um, to pass around and pass out to whoever to keep the education going. And then lo and behold, uh, years later, uh, that party ended up legalizing marijuana in Canada. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, I think it was a lot of good timing with that film. Now that, that actual legalization of marijuana, uh, the film would only be playing a very, you know, small part in that. There was sure. a lot of activists and various people who put their ass on the line, who fought hard to make that happen. So, mm-hmm. so but, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like I was mentioning, uh, so in Ontario where we uh, live, so we are right next door to, it's called the Tyananaga Mohawk Reserve. So we're still kind of seeing a little bit of a battle between the, the black market and uh, and the legal market, um, whereas mm-hmm. you, know, you can order it uh, from the government, uh, whereas all the, uh, the pot shops on the reserve uh, are still operating technically illegally. Nobody touched them because, you know, it's, it's legal, um, but they're still getting yeah. it from black market sources, right? So it's, it's kind of funny yeah. to still see that kind of play out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, the government had a long way to go to even get to where they are with the quality 
of what they're putting out. And I think there's still, yeah. it is a long way that needs to be uh, moved as far as quality of the product and uh, accessibility. I, I like the drop off in shops where it was available here in Vancouver is, is crazy dramatic. Like it, it's really hard to find a legal one now. And of course all the, the ones that didn't uh, do it, the, you know, through the method the government was requiring, they, they all got shut down. Right. But I think there's a lot of movement. But even when they were first doing, um, they had taken on years prior. And I can't remember, but this might have even been around the time that we were doing the union. So we're talking quite a while ago. But when they first took on, you know, supplying some of the medical marijuana, they really didn't know what they were doing at the time. I believe at one point when they first started, they were growing it in a mine shaft somewhere out in the middle of Canada there. Okay. You know, if you're growing it in a mine shaft, we're talking about soil that's probably not the best. Right. And on top of that, they were they, they didn't even understand the process of the bud versus the stems and stuff because they were grinding up the entire plant at the point, that point. And so people were smoking like, the fuck were they you know, playing? half of it, more than half of it was basically stem, which is horrible. Like right. you don't, you don't want to be doing that. So, but they've, they've, they've made strides and come a long way, which is great. Um, and, and will continue to do so. It's, um, it's one of those things where I, I always talk about this in many aspects, whether, you know, it's progression in, uh, uh, various aspects of society that are beyond marijuana, but in regards to marijuana, it seems like a long time. It seems like this is taking forever to get to where we are. But on the you know on the scale of humanity, this is a blip. This is this is happening at an exponential rate at this point. So it is moving along very well. We just got to keep moving it along. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is Christian talking now. One of the dudes. Um, what was your uh, what was your relationship like with cannabis prior to being approached for this documentary? I actually I was uh, under the same guise as most people. Where if it was around, maybe once in a while, and all of us were drinking at a party, and it was being passed around, I might have had a hoot. Uh, but I I didn't really know much about it, and I, I assumed it was hardcore bad for you because uh you know at the time i'd still i bought into the whole you know one marijuana joint equals i can't remember the thing it was five cigarettes or ten cigarettes i think it's four pitched it back then yeah so that was that was that was where i came from it too and that's why it initially the documentary started as just looking at the business because i didn't think it was very good for you either um I i thought it i believed in a lot of the horrific things you had heard as well and so that obviously transitioned over time. Um, I, I'm still not a, a big user. It's like a once in a while thing. It's, for me, it's with any of this stuff, it's moderation. Just for me personally, I know some people can tolerate it more and good for them. They, it adds a lot to their lives. And then there's some people who uh, maybe it doesn't interact with them as well. And, and they have more negative effects, you know. And then you're going to find that with anything. You're going to find that with peanuts. Some people die from eating peanuts. Different people are going to react in different ways. But as a whole, you know, as far as something that uh, is consumed by mass society, marijuana is one of the safer uh, Uh, things for altering your conscious state that we have. Um, So I think it's one that that should 100% obviously be legal. But from a, a medical standpoint, it was very interesting because my mom, uh, my mom passed away, but 
before she had passed away, she had uh, multiple sclerosis basically all my life. And uh, I think it was the culture high. Again, just for the audience listening, these, these films like The Union was 2005. Culture High was quite a few years ago as well. So my memory's a bit foggy every time I say I think <laughs> these answers. But um, with my mom, um, even in, uh, I think it was, maybe it was The Union at that point. Yeah, it would have been The Union. Uh, she had seen the film. She, she understood it and agreed with everything in it, but she still had that, like, so she had, was facing cancer on top of the multiple sclerosis at the time. And the stigma of it still being illegal at the time was, uh, was with her. And that hit me hard because I remember one day I was standing there and I brought, brought two joints because she was going through chemotherapy and she said that she still just couldn't do it just because of the legality. Right. And so I think that was another one of those contributing factors to why I personally still ended up doing the culture high because I was I really hadn't wanted to take on the topic again. But it seemed like okay, the work's not done quite yet with this, um, at, at least from the standpoint of what I might be able to contribute and, and the guys I work with uh, might be able to contribute to this. Right. So yeah, you know, and and then I have also been fortunate enough to see firsthand the effects that marijuana has on medical patients and it's it's you, you can't even question it when you see it happen mm-hmm. in front of your eyes from uh, Greg who would been would have been in the film that you saw uh, the union Greg Greg couldn't even do the interview until he had smoked but once he smoked it just Greg Greg had multiple sclerosis and or has multiple sclerosis and the shaking just stops you see it on camera that's crazy um, I do yeah, say, and it's funny, Greg. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I do have to say that's probably one of the most powerful scenes in uh, in the documentary. It, it kind of just, you know, shakes you and say, "Holy shit!" Like, like this is yeah, <laughs> this is crazy. No, it, it really does, it, it, and and I've seen that over and over with with several patients. Um, and then, uh, of course, by the time we got to the culture high. Uh, we were dealing, you know, we had done the story on Jaden who, who had Dravet uh, syndrome which is a form of epilepsy, a really hardcore thing. And geez, that, that poor kid, they had him on, um, and the doctors had recommended benzodiazepines at one Jesus. point, which is, anybody knows what benzos are. They're, they're probably one of the hardest things to get off of in the, in the world. Yeah. Uh, to the point to that, kid. yes. Yeah. And addiction clinics won't even, or, you know, one's the detox, they, they, many of them didn't even take on the case with him because they didn't want to be responsible for a death because you can li- literally die. Jesus. They said on the phone to Jaden's father, they were saying, uh, he's how old? You know, like I think he was five or six or something. And uh, they said, we have big, giant football players who are trying to get off this and they can't get off this. You know, they can't imagine what it would be like for a kid to get off it. And then to see the difference where I think Jaden was on. <laughs> I don't know how many pills a day. And now he's down to two because of the cannabis. And that was, you know, six years ago. I don't know. He might be off the benzos now, but the benzos were the last one they were trying to, trying to get him off. But seeing that firsthand with, with the patients was just, it was, it was huge as far as uh, convincing you. Uh, the, the importance of, of regarding this as a medical, um, way of treating things over some of the pharmaceuticals and the side effects that come up with pharmaceuticals. 
And just the fact that uh, it shows, like, you know, that pharmaceutical companies have kind of taken the THC and made it into, um, I can't remember the name of the pill, um, but... Marinol. Yeah. Was the one back in the day. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they they know the the properties of it and how good it is and and just kind of take it for as their own. Yeah, well, and it was interesting with Marinol because Marinol back in the day... um, Man, this is really stretching my brain here to remember all this. But the Marinol, I believe, was where they had just isolated THC by itself right. and synthesized it. And it made it way less effective. Oh. And what they realized was that all these other cannabinoids that are uh, within marijuana kind of work as a whole to provide the, the, the really good effects from it. So what was happening was when people were doing the Marinol, they were having to do so much Marinol to get any type of effect of it off it that they would get way more high than they would have had they just done it naturally. And so nobody who was doing Marinol wanted it. Right. So that's why Marinol never did it, did very well. Of course, now with the legal market, they're learning various ways to, uh, to uh, basically get it into your system effectively. Sure. So, and, and they're going to continue to do that. But yeah, it, it's crazy. And, and the reason they had to do that back, back in the day was because that's the way the pharmaceutical uh, companies operate is that you need something that you can, you know, synthesize and then you can basically uh, make it yours, uh, patent it, and then then nobody can touch that for 20 years. And then you make as much money for that 20 years as you can. And then once that goes off, you know, that's up and everybody else starts, you you see all these knockoffs come in. But uh, it just didn't work because anybody who had actually tried cannabis just basically laughed off Marinol. It was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. In in the, this is Mitch here in the uh, union when hey, you ga- you guys go to uh, the grow op with like the sea containers underground, how freaky yeah. was that was? Because that seemed kind of intense. How like you got to put these glasses on, and the like the cell phone, and it just seemed pretty intense. Yeah, well, we actually had two two elements. So we had the one that you're talking about was the. Um, it was 20, I think it was 20 train cars buried underground. Jesus. They had literally a, a big tanker truck off to the side that had had the fuel yeah. for all the generators and stuff. And the reason for anybody who's wondering why, why they would bury the train cars underground, aside from the fact that just visually it hides it, it was also a layer for uh, the infrared. The helicopters would, would be going around at that time in Kelowna looking for, for heat patterns. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, to find grow ops. And one of the ways that you could hide that is, well, you put you know, five feet of dirt and metal between it. That helps to alleviate what they might find with that. Um, so that grow up was, yeah, that was one that had been busted. Uh, that was, that was a quite a big one. That one we had gained contacts through contacts. Uh, to get out there. So that one was freaky in the sense of it was just crazy to be going underground into something that hadn't, you know, nobody had been in for quite a while. You could still see the cords that were cut yeah. by the police and stuff. And they left the tanks in there because they were just so huge, the water tanks. And yeah, it was a kind of dingy. Yeah. Right. Kind of looked dingy. And, and we were literally out in the middle of nowhere too. Um, the other one though, that you were talking about where we had to, put on the glasses and, and all that. That one was more sketchy to me because that one was an up and running grow up. Yeah. So that was, the, that's why we had to wear that stuff then. And it's funny, um, even those glasses that we had to wear a lot of the times back then when, when it was hardcore legal, a lot of the clippers, the people that would go out and basically you'd be harvesting the crop for people. 
they had to wear those type of sunglasses that we did where you basically tape the inside, but you can't see where you're going when they drive you out there. Mm-hmm. And the reason they did that with the Clippers is because they didn't want anybody really knowing where these grow ups were. So then they had applied that method to us when we were going to go out and see their underground uh, grow up in the basement. And, uh, and the funny thing about that is when, when, you know, you start interviewing that person there, you realize that that guy was just, just some young guy, probably going to college who just wanted to make a buck and didn't see marijuana as very harmful. He's kind of mm-hmm. like you and I, you know, and he was just, he wasn't a big hardcore scary criminal. Um, so, but, but it was, it was still, you never know with those things, especially back then, yeah. uh, what, what you were getting into. So that, that one was legitimately a, a freaky experience, but, uh, it was well worth going to, oh, absolutely. to get an actual feel for what was probably a, a thousand other of those around there at that time. Yeah. Which is wild too, that like logistically, like how the hell do you get that done? Like how do you bury all those train cars and not anyone know or kind of have an idea like what are these guys yeah, doing over blew, here? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, it blew our mind too because you had to have an excavator. For sure you had an excavator. You had to be dragging up train car after train car. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. And then I think with that one too, they had to have somebody out there all the time too because oh, basically you had somebody to, to watch the thing. And that, that was the big scary thing about uh, having a grow up back then was the grow rips where yeah. you would get people coming in and they would come in at gunpoint basically yeah. and take everything that you'd done. Cause that, that's how lucrative it was. Yeah. Like a place like that with the buried train cars where you're going to have probably millions of dollars over the years come out of, uh, of that place for, for marijuana profits. Yeah. And these are genuine investments for people involved as well. This isn't just like a side project. Like you mentioned, this is people's genuine financing this is where they've put all their eggs so they it was back then and it yeah well and it, it was back then because and, and probably still to an extent today just not quite as much but um the the turnover was so quick on the crops as well yeah. like I, I i could be wrong but i think you were cropping out roughly every three months yeah that so sounds cool. yeah that's what they three, said in the doc is it yeah so three every three months you know you're looking at four times a year you know, it, that's, that's huge for, especially for the numbers you're pulling out of there. So you'll have, you'll have your investment back within no time on that. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was when, by the time we did the culture high as well, we ended up in a legitimate me, uh, medical marijuana grow, uh, at the time for that one. That's where we got a lot of the beauty shots, but that even that one, it was so lucrative, even though it was legal that that one had to have a bunch of security and they didn't want anybody to know where it was. Cause even, even though it was still being done, um, licensed through the government that there was still, there was a danger of, of you know, a grow rip just because of how lucrative it was. And it's of course like, now yeah. when they were growing high end stuff, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, if you're yeah. growing medical grade. Yeah. It's like a, the West coast gold rush. There was just train robberies at risk all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it was back then, and, and especially for, for BC, because, you know, the majority of it at the time was going down to the states, just because of the, at least the perceived um, uh, quality of what it was at the time. It was marketed really well, too, you know, as soon as you get that name out of there, mm-hmm. out there that says BC Bud, and that starts resonating, uh, your prices go up, and so when it became really lucrative to get it down there, uh, yeah, BC, that's when the business became, they, they clocked it in in various, uh, 
various news articles at the time as being a you know five to seven billion dollars uh, for the industry, and, and you know BC doesn't have a huge population for for that to be an uh, illegal industry running at that kind of level and those numbers and, and marijuana you know going down there that was huge at the time and that's when they were coming up with crazy methods of how to get it over the border that was uh, that was the big issue back then was you know you once in a while you'd see a, an article come out and they had found a, a tunnel going from one barn to another barn on the either side of the uh either side of the border or there was uh stuff that we didn't even get into the film but it would, there would be like, a, say you'd have a fishing type boat and you would be dragging along a big batch of marijuana under the water in essence, kind of in a sealed, big sealed thing. And if you got taken in by the Coast Guard, you'd cut the line and I think it would sink to some extent so that it couldn't be found. And then, yeah. you know, whether it was hours later or whatever, something would pop in it and make it float back up to the surface and they would go find it again. And, you know, yeah, just these, like that. insane things. And I think out your way, they might've found a tiny submarine that was going, uh, underneath in Lake Ontario, possibly between the States or totally I, I can't remember. Sense. There was some, some stories. Yeah. Like that. And then, then, then on the Mexican border, with the U.S., there is stories coming out of catapults. <laughs> I just you know, love how that kind of money you're going. Yeah, yeah, I just love how innovative they are. That they're like, we can make so much money, but we have to do this, and like they just have brainstorming sessions. So they're like, let's try this, let's try this, and like, oh, that we just lost a hundred thousand dollars, but oh well, we'll keep try something else. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's what you know spikes that creativity. When you see the kind of numbers you're going to pull out, you're you're going to be willing to risk risk a little uh, um, money on whatever attempts you're going to make to get it over. Yeah, of course, the big one, though, yeah, the big one is still, of course, with flying planes over as well and then just doing drops out of the planes mm-hmm. back then. Let's be but honest, they, too, I don't think I they... Think, w- uh, sorry to jump in. Let's be honest, too. I think there yeah. was definitely some joints smoked when they were thinking about how to deliver this shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, oh, no, I... I I think in general, yeah, the, the creativity that's been spiked in all aspects of, of the way cannabis could be used. Um, it was funny. We were over in uh, Spain. We were at their hemp museum over there. And oh, cool. the ways they're using hemp now and making uh, uh, bricks out of it, and like yeah. long-lasting bricks. And they were making car parts out of it. And just the ingenuity of what they're using uh, yeah. hemp for now is, is insane as well. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's insane, but it's also like kind of sad because it was just stifened for so long that you're like, oh, where could we be if this, like, if we were allowed to, like, r- make things with hemp and like r- engineer things with hemp, like, we'd be so far Absolutely. advanced. Yeah. No, and that's in all aspects. It, it makes me right when you say that. It makes me think of the electric car too, and how it was a yeah. thing way back in the day, and then it got killed for it. Yeah, great period of time where there could have been a lot of ingenuity, and we might have yeah. had an electric car at this point for under you know sixty grand. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, with, with cannabis, that, that's one hundred percent the case with what hemp might have been uh, capable of doing. Also, just from a, a renewable aspect, where you know with the the um, uh, sorry biofuel, the, yeah. the fact that when you grow massive fields of hemp it doesn't degrade the soil in the same way that other crops do. And the, the, yeah. the, the crops are also more condensed. You get more out of them. This, uh, it has more cellulose than in trees for paper. The paper lasts longer. It's 
stronger. Um, just uh, so many aspects to it that, that we would be way further ahead. I, you know, apply that on the medical front. Had yeah. it not been demonized for 60, 70 years, it'd probably be way further along as well. You know, we just we started learning about the endocannabinoid system not so long ago, and now we're realizing that the endocannabinoid system is kind of the key to a lot of things within the human body at this point. And the one thing that seems to have full access to the endocannabinoid system because it's receptors, uh, it fits within the receptors of that system is, is the cannabis. So yeah, I would be way further along with that as well. And yeah, not to mention all the people that were in jail for how many years and lost years of their lives yeah. just by choosing marijuana over drinking a drink. Right. Yeah. So one of, uh, after watching it, uh, and, now that we know uh, pot is legalized, uh, was one of your interviews with uh, Senator Larry Campbell, uh, where you asked him, mm-hmm. basically, you know, will it be legalized? Um, and he says, oh, yeah, it'll be legalized, but not in my lifetime. Um, I had to check. Larry Campbell is still alive. Have you had oh. any conversations with him afterwards? <laughs> no, we haven't. We haven't. And it's funny because, yeah, when we interviewed him, he was actually the mayor of uh, Vancouver at that time. He wasn't I don't think he was... Uh, uh, had had been as far along in politics at that point, but that is interesting. Yeah, I, and I remember exactly him talking about that. I also remember too that when he was in um, in as the mayor here, that's when he was facing heat. That was when uh, BC kept threatening to legalize, and Canada was threatening to legalize. I think even Chen at the time. Right. He was kind of older, and it seemed like he didn't give a shit anymore. And one of the last <laughs> things he wanted to do, he says, oh, "I'm just going to decriminalize this." It was almost no, like a no kind of like a whatever. I'm tired yeah. of this shit type thing. Yeah. And um, and the Americans kept coming up to BC and stuff, and they they kept threatening us, basically saying, "You better not legalize. Like we might shut down the border and all these various things." And it's funny because they ended up being the first ones to legalize it down yeah. in Colorado, right. and yeah. Yeah. And, and and they're seeing amazing effects come out of that. I think in one of the areas that they legalized that they had so so many tax dollars from it that they didn't even know what to do with it. They yeah, put it insane. back into Yeah, right. And Which, and uh of course the sky didn't fall, you know, crime didn't go up. Uh-huh. Uh, crime went down actually. Ton. Yeah, yeah, most yeah. likely. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, still crazy so. that those evidence is there and there's still people that are like, No, it's bad. We can't like, holy well, Jesus. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. There's certain people that until it happens to a family member or themselves, mm-hmm. they don't, they just seem to not believe it. Yeah. And I kind of equate a lot of that being them being in an environment where they've grown up in it and they've been their their brains even just so structured yeah, around the idea that this is horrible. And yeah. you'll find that in various aspects of society where it's kind of, you can tell they grew up, they've been groomed this way mm-hmm. for, I guess, you know, it's not the best word to use, but they've been uh, processed this way within their environment to think a certain way. And it's really hard for them to get out of that psychology that they're in. But the, the thing to me that is just, it, it just destroys the argument. Uh, it, it's what brings it to the forefront and will actually keep it moving down the legal scale is, uh, is information. That's basically all it comes down to. When you actually distribute information on a massive scale, uh, and people learn about the actual real effects of it and how it actually can help or 
uh, in the cases if you're using it recreationally, how maybe it might be safer than some of the other stuff that you use. You know, unless you're completely illogical, you know, in full denial, it's a rational person will see um, the light on the issue. And so with the Internet, as the Internet became a bigger thing, and mind you, the Internet was, was one of the key components for the union becoming as big as it was because it became shared through through peers, through people who uh, saw it and were like, this information needs to get out. And that's, that's how it became so big initially was, was through the Internet. The Internet has provided the answers to all the questions that people have with it. And so through that, the, the legalization just spread just, just dramatically and it continues to spread. Like at this point, it's it, when you get, you come across somebody who, who still spouts some of the ridiculous notions behind what they think marijuana will do. It's, it's almost laughable. Like oh, you kind of look at them like, Oh, is, is, is everything okay in your life? Like, really? You're still harping on this? Like, yeah, that was yeah, a really fun uh, part was, of the, of the doc was now seeing this in a legal country in a legal situation it was it was exactly right that was laughable to see some of these people comment on it and give their opinion and give even uh, an attempt at fact uh, like a factual statement it just everything was pretty much off the mark 100 percent yeah and we were getting that too behind the scenes and statements from people who would write us and tell us how horrible it was and all these various things. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was one of the things that film films, both of those films really had to push through at that point. Um, it's still, it's, it's crazy. You still see it today. I, I saw, I don't know if it was a month ago or two months ago, Joe Biden in one of his speeches was talking about how he still wasn't sure about the marijuana thing that it's been proven that it's still a gateway drug. And, and just, I'm I, I, I put my hands over my face. You got a complete loss right. of yeah. really, you know, and of course at the federal level, you might still expect that because they might still be influenced by other sources that might want to have marijuana remain as a schedule one drug on there with heroin as having no medical benefits known to man, which is an absolutely absurd place for it still to remain. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, yeah, it's getting less and less now, though. Uh, it's getting laughable, at least. Well, one thing Mitch was uh, mentioning before we uh, uh, started recording, uh, we love the use of uh, like old uh, educational videos uh, um, in the film. And like, if they took half the money that they took like producing those videos, you know, as far back as you know the fifties or whatever, and put it into research for you know the benefits of it, you know, <laughs> things would be so different right now. Yeah, and you know, it's not even that. It was one of the, the arguments I had to, or just points of view I tried to illustrate to people who were really dead set that this was the worst thing in the world to be around, uh, for people to be around, was that even if you believed everything, all the horrible things about marijuana, like that it was going to do this and that, and it was going to, you know, make you, uh, it had horrible health benefits and stuff it still would make more sense to bring it into the legal model and educate people on it. Uh, even if you believe that, because people are using it, whether it's illegal or not illegal, the, right. the, the rates mm -hmm. of use are pretty much the same. So your choice is if you look at it as a health issue 
like, of course, I still see it as, as being much healthier than just about every other option out there. But oh, absolutely. Um, if you are on that train of it's the worst thing, you, you still would want to go this route because then you would want to bring people into the fold so they can actually learn about it. Well, what exactly are the negative health effects so sure. that you can attempt to avoid them? Um, you know, and then when you are, have it in the legal model, use that money to facilitate the education. You know what I mean? Of people with it. Versus when it's in an illegal model, all that money just goes into the hands of, of the uh, people who are uh, illegally growing it. You'll mm. never see a dollar within the system contributing to anything. Sure. So, yeah, it's it's, a, it's kind of a, a crazy that that's um, when we talked to Leap. By the time we got to the second film, we started speaking to uh, Leap, which is. Uh, a huge organization that's growing mm-hmm. across the world called law enforcement against prohibition. And these are high level police officers from across the world who, who have not only seen the ramifications of the marijuana war on marijuana, but also the ramifications of the war on drugs in general. And basically what their whole standpoint on it is stop approaching this issue, even the hardcore drugs like, say, meth and that, stop approaching the issue as being a criminal issue and start looking at it as a health issue. Mm-hmm. That that if you change over the model from keeping it illegal, which is, you know, if you're say if you're a meth user and you're getting your drugs from a meth dealer, you're going to keep using those drugs and you're going to keep going down that road basically till you kill yourself right. because the meth dealer wants you to continue. Mm-hmm. Right? And, uh, and then none of that money is going to go into any kind of services that would actually help you. And the, so their argument is if you switch it over to being a health issue, the rates of use still ultimately really don't shift that much. Like I'm, if they shifted it to a legal model, I am no more likely in my life at this point to go using, to go going to use crystal meth than I would have had it been illegal. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so when you change it to that legal model, and you go, look, you have to get, you get these hardcore drugs from us. But what, what, what happens is every single time you come in, you're seeing people that care about you that are offering opportunities uh, for education or helping you get off this or maybe helping you find a job or all these different things. And they bring you within constantly within the realm of, okay, well, what can we do to help you so that you don't feel you have to use anymore? Of course, you're going to have people that still use, but you're going to have a way bigger number of people that actually get help and your the numbers will go down because mm-hmm. the whole purpose of that at that point is to actually help people get off it. But the model we use right now, it just encourages people to use further because it demonizes them. And as we know, one of the, the, the main cause of drug use is basically you're trying to alleviate mental anguish, mental pain. People are doing hardcore drugs because they're trying to get away from the issues in their life whether they were abused, whether they're, you know, going through divorces or whatever it is that's causing that. Right. The use of drugs generally at that level, when you're talking about hardcore stuff, is because you're trying to get away from something mentally. And if you put them into a model of criminality, it just further sends them down that hole where they feel like a piece of shit and yeah. they need to use more and more and more to the point that they kill themselves to not feel this pain and anguish, you know, so... 
Absolutely. Anyway, that's one way of looking at it. If we're hearing it from <laughs> the top cops around the world, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's something we should at least think about. You know, definitely. They they seem to be that they would be like the most qualified because they're seeing it firsthand, not some politician like just sitting in a room and like, oh, we need to do this and do that. So it's absolutely, yeah. it's, it's an endless cycle. The yeah. drug war is is it's, it's even the, the 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 idea that it's a war is. is it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. People are going to use, just, just does not matter. They're going to use to some extent. People have always wanted to alter their conscious state, but more importantly, people have always used stuff to get away from depression in their lives. And so the, the thing that we have to look at as a society is, okay, well, accepting that this is going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a better way of approaching it? Is there a more successful way of approaching it? And basically, you start by isolating the goal. Well, is the goal to just throw as many people in fucking prison as we can? Well, if, if that's the goal, then we're doing really good. Right. You know, um, if the goal is to help people and get them off it and actually show some type of empathy within this, because eventually somebody in your family, it'll happen to you, I guarantee. Yeah. Then, then maybe we do need to relook at the model and, have, and approach it in a way that will actually come with results that don't have mass incarceration on on levels that are just unheard of. You know, in the United States, 25% of the world's population, and they have 5% uh, of, the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the prison population. And that's yeah, fucked. That's it's insane. absurd. That's it's so insane. fucked up. It's crazy. That's so fucked up. You know, up. and they're, yeah, especially in, in the land of the free, right? It's, yeah. It's, just, it's, it's a crazy model that's set up. But there is hope with it, and, and the hope is that, that people are waking up to it. And that actually brings us full circle to what you guys are talking about, which is the more the Internet releases this information and, and gives access to information on how we can approach this stuff differently, the more rational voices are heard, the better chance we have at actually achieving some of these things. Yeah, yeah. about that, this is kind of a two-pronger um about what we were speaking about before, uh, the fact that this was always advertised and it was kind of uh, like agitative propaganda from the states, basically from like the 1920s until still today, yeah. more or less, um, yeah. in the schools, in the public, in politics, in media, everything. Um, it was yeah. always touted as being a health crisis. And that this was for the health and safety of the American population, and it's it's curiously obvious to me that that was what they decided to advertise with because they don't even have a healthcare system. So, is health really that important to this topic? Well, I don't I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, let me let me present it. Yeah, let me present a scenario to you. Uh, let's just take it away from marijuana for a second. Okay, let's just say you come down with, uh, I don't know, anything else. Uh, say you break your leg or um, say you get, I don't know, say you get cancer. Say you have some other health issue, some other thing that you are uh, having problem, problems with. Or say you just get hardcore depression. If I went to you and said, okay, we think in this scenario for the issue that you're having, uh, the best case scenario to help you is to put you in a metal cage. We're just going to leave you there with other criminals. This, this is this is the best way that we think we can help whatever issue is that you're having. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's not no other thing on earth where that's a rational argument. And so even if you take the hardcore people who are against and they think that, well, you have a real issue because you use marijuana and you're you're gonna have health issues. So so to prevent you from having health issues from marijuana, we're gonna put you in a metal cage. And that is somehow, which is in essence what a jail cell is, mm-hmm. it's that we're gonna put you in a metal cage and that is gonna be healthier for you than had we just provided you with some education and let you, you know, smoke some weed. They have zero it, it's, faith it's in these such people. an idiotic stance to take that when you apply it to anything else, it becomes very, very clear. But it was just accepted for so long uh, in, in that way. But you gotta, you got to remember, too, back in the day when they were doing some of those advertisements and stuff, those, a lot of those things were being funded by uh, um, areas of society that might have incentives to keep marijuana legal. So a lot of yeah. dollars that went into advertising that might have come from uh, alcohol, right. uh, the yeah. alcohol industry. Or like or, uh, and... it, Yes, or yeah. industries that build mega profits off of uh, basically uh, uh, pitching themselves as curing people from the use of marijuana. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's... Uh, you, you really have to look into, especially when you're getting advertising on television and stuff like that, where where is the money coming from that yeah. actually supports this argument and, and why is it being out there? Yeah, so, I think it's yeah, probably you get some ridiculous stuff. One of the most Absolutely. thorough ways to uh, track down any kind of source really now in today's world is just follow the money. But uh, so that kind of leads me to the second second part of this question entirely unrelated, but it has to do with what we were just broaching. Um, This documentary is uh, searchable and watchable on YouTube. So how do you, how do you feel about that? What is your thoughts? Well, there's two, two kind of areas. Um, I I don't know. I, I, I'm not the one that tracks that stuff down at this point. It's uh, there's, there's the filmmaking aspect where, um, when we first do these films, uh, we basically sacrifice a lot to do them. And, uh, if on the back end, we basically, we can't keep doing them if, if, if they just get stolen right away and there's no way to recoup what was spent to make them, uh, or do them like, uh, Adam sold his house on the first film. Uh, Steven and I went heavy into debt because we ended up working on that film for another six months after it was supposed to be done. Um, so, you know, and like I said, we don't make a lot of money in the first place on these things. Like, I mean, at all, uh, you know, you think you're going to make something and then the project takes three years and there's no more money than when you first started. So suddenly that's divided by three, um, your income. So, so initially, uh, we do need the aspect of, we can't have that stuff online. We need to, still get it out there for people, but we need it to be supported in order to even move on to the next one. And, and, and also for the ability that, that, that we had put so much time into it. Um, over time though, I think we've gotten way more lax with it. Uh, especially on those ones to the point where, like you said, there's probably several of those up at this point and I don't think they're getting taken down anymore. I think that, I think where, uh, people who, Still, uh, you know, the, like the union hasn't even been fully paid back yet. Funny enough, it still hasn't made a profit. Wow. It got picked up by a distributor, but 
you know, when you're at the level we were, the deal we got at the time for that, we made nothing on it. All of a sudden there's all these other costs that come before you get any cut. And so that the film's still being paid back on that. Um, But when people are putting up, when they put up for say the union and they put it up on YouTube, but they're putting up advertising with it where they're making money. I think those ones will get taken down. I think the ones that ended up getting left up were ones where there was no advertising put on it. And it was up for the pure purpose of, okay, it's educating people. Cause then that's a different kind of approach and standpoint with it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough area to be honest, because like you can't keep doing it unless you see some results on the back end of, uh, of it being supported financially. Um, but on the same token, like I, uh, you know, there's, there's points where you just kind of like, well, no, I'd rather just be out and, and getting, uh, getting people educated. So at this point, I think, uh, I think especially with the union, I think it's just out and about and it's, it's doing its thing. And we, we pretty much leave most of those up unless somebody's trying to make money for themselves off of it. Right. And absolutely. I think, I think you yeah. kind of look at that differently. Yeah. That's atrocious because it absolutely detracts from the reason this thing exists in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and, and then those two films too, I would say in particular, they're different than a typical film where, uh, you know, some of the other stuff we might do where it's more for entertainment value and learning about people. But, uh, especially the union, it's such an educational tool at this point. Um, mm. Like we, we were in universities and stuff. It's fucking crazy when you get calls about that. Of yeah, we're gonna be putting this, or we're gonna add this to the curriculum, and you're like, holy mm. shit, yeah, that's, that's pretty pretty cool, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's definitely something yeah, to be proud it, of. It, it, yeah. 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 That that one in particular, that was a that was a big feat on that. The same thing happened with the culture high though too. Um, the culture high kind of goes more into depth just in general of how society functions. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, that's a complicated nuanced question with, uh, an answer where I don't know if I fully answered it in a great way because I'd have to really think more about it because I have conflicting feelings on both sides of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something that we all feel but i don't think a lot of us have really stopped to really do the math on what it means to us yeah yeah for sure yeah it's such a the the area of online is it's such a an interesting evolving area in general now like even with the covid just the fact that uh you you can't even go into a theater anymore and we don't know the next time that you will be able to go into a theater at this point right yeah like uh the late the yeah or whatever the latest, uh, I forget what movie it was, but some Hollywood movie was released. Uh, I think it might have been a Disney movie. And then they realized yeah. that they made like way more money so they can just cut out movie theaters. And movie theaters were like right? super pissed. But they're like, why wouldn't they? Like your market doesn't work anymore. So, so yeah. Well, all of that is, yeah, all of that is evolving so quickly yeah. now. Like we were with the latest documentary, we were scheduled to be in 40. We're going to start with a 40 theater release. Okay. And, uh, and that just went kaput obviously yeah. with, um, with COVID. But I think just in, in many areas, people are kind of waking up to a lot of corners that can be cut by things happening online. Like, you know, the skyrocketing of zoom for business meetings when people working from home now and yeah, probably cool. a lot of businesses realizing, Hey, we don't need to rent a, <laughs> you no. know, a, a big office downtown yeah. anymore. People can do this from their home. Right. Yeah. 
So then, oh, you mentioned uh, the newest doc you're working on. Um, how did you get into that? Like, just fascinated with Danny Trejo or like hear his story? Well, actually, I was coming off of uh, another documentary which is completely different than all of the ones we've talked about so far, which was Ice Guardians. Okay. And that yeah. was on uh, Fighters in the NHL. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so I was finishing that up, and then um, basically one of the producers we worked with, uh, Rocky, uh, he, he had been doing films with Danny, because Danny does freaking about a 10 or 11 films a year. Like, yeah, he's just yeah. a machine. Yeah. He just pumps them out. And he's just not like your typical celebrity. He doesn't care about whether he's a movie star or not. He just wants to work. Yeah. So he's doing everything under the sun. Like he'll do zombies to something really awesome. Like he, he just doesn't care. And um, so anyways, he was working on a film with Rocky. And through that, his life story came about. And uh, and Rocky was like, whoa, this, this might make a documentary. And then Rocky went to Adam, who I worked with, and Adam thought it would be good. And then when I looked at it, I was like, holy smokes. So I took a month off and I researched Danny's story. And I, I wrote a, basically a pitch book and found pictures and did, designed a printed out hardcover book that we then brought down to Danny. And then when Danny saw it, he was like, these are the guys to, to do the doc. And that's kind of how Danny's story launched from there. But the reason to do it was I probably like yourselves, I, I only knew Danny as a really scary looking dude in mm -hmm. films. Yeah. Like it was just like, Oh, there's that guy. You know, I didn't even know his name yeah, at yeah. that point. And so all his crazy tattoos went all the way. and scars and yeah. 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 Actually. Yeah. He's the scary look looking guy with tattoos. Yeah. That's right. He always <laughs> had to add the tattoos on. And, uh, like, you know, I think the first one I saw him was Desperado. Right. And it was just like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, and that was the one, he didn't even have a line in that movie. A lot of people don't realize that, but he's the one you remember most from that movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's how I knew him. But when I looked into his story there, and it was just like, Jesus, it was the craziest transformation of human character I had ever come across. Out of any doc we had done, out of any movie we had, uh, I had watched in my life, it just the the depths that he sank to, like crazy depths in criminality, and how he pulled himself out of that to then become uh, uh, the Hollywood basically icon that we we all know at this point, where you know his face is everywhere, yeah. he's doing everything, you know. So, so that's that's basically how that film started. I gotta cool. tell you, Brett, uh, I watched it this afternoon, and yeah, uh, yeah, uh, incredible. Uh, just his story, the way you tell the story. Um, uh, to the cinematography, awesome. everything is fantastic. My wife walked in about yeah. three quarters of the way through, so she just watched the end with me. And uh, just watching mm -hmm. the last quarter of the movie, when it stops, she's like, "Wow, that's fucking fantastic!" <laughs> I got to go back and start that's it again. That's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, it's come a long way since the union. That's for sure. <laughs> it's um, Denny's was interesting as well because it was the first time where I was able to tackle. Uh, just a an isolated single story, right. basically. Yeah, that's you know, it was yeah, like it, 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 it's a biopic. So mm -hmm. I was able to actually just basically focus on what his life story was, and it it presented new challenges for sure, but it also allowed for new opportunities in in what I was shooting, um, and how I was able to incorporate B roll or or tell the stories. Whereas in the past, with the docs that we had talked about those were basically social issue docs. So it's different trying to form a narrative 
where you you're you know we have 30 people that we're talking to in it and, and in essence the story is about an issue and and a, a substance so you're trying to form a narrative out of that whereas um with danny uh you know it's a story that actually just a through line that exists that, that happens so with danny's i was able to go out and shoot more theatrical type footage to aid his story right oh, that's um, awesome but but some of the negatives that came with it were that you know, his story happened a good portion of it, 60 to 50 years ago. Sure. And when, when it's his personal story and you need stuff specifically about him, it's really tough to, well, what do you show? Because in his neighborhood, you know, that neighborhood was just starting at that time. That was in Pacoima. That was transitioning from orange fields, uh, you know, orange groves to, to this dirt roads. And, and basically these, these immigrant people had moved in and were creating their own community at the time. So, there wasn't a lot of pictures being taken and there definitely was no video. And then when he went into prison for, you know, 10 years, uh, there's nothing, zero zilch of him in there. So I had to think of creative ways to do, to, to facilitate that. But what? with the social ones, when you go back in time like that, it's easier because you can use more general footage yeah, like that, the that illustrates stuff and, the yeah. period of time. Exactly. So yeah. there's challenges and benefits to, to doing both of those. Well, you, you took those challenges in stride because, uh, you know, I didn't feel that uh, at all throughout the documentary. It felt like, um, you know, you were there along uh, for the ride with uh, with Danny th- during his story. Like just the way he, he talked yeah. about prison and, you know, the stuff you did show uh, just it helped uh, helped you get into it. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, one of the things that helps the shooting, uh, I, I recommend to people who want to be doing their own shooting is uh, I, I got forced into learning more theatrical-type shooting by uh, doing music videos. So we were doing kind of like low-budget music videos with local bands in Vancouver for right. a few years there. Cool. And through doing that, like when you do a music video, it has to look really theatrical and yeah. kind of cool. Otherwise, it's not, you know, you, I guess you could do the really just uh, stereotypical shaky handheld them just playing their music. But when I did the music videos, I took that as an opportunity to actually tell stories within those. So I was able to start learning more um, variations of lighting that were kind of conducive to a theatrical look and and camera movements and how to deal with those aspects. And then when it came to doing Danny's story, I was able to implement those a lot better than what I had previously in my toolbox, which was just straight, kind of archival type shooting right. standard documentary stuff, you know, uh, mm-hmm. fly on the wall, just shoot them. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, an opportunity to do that. Perfect. Well, so two things we like to do with, uh, with our guests. Um, so I'd like to let you plug, uh, whatever you're working on now, or, um, I know we've talked about inmate number one a little bit, uh, your latest project, um, or just even let people know where they can watch it or, or what you're working on. Yeah, uh, so Inmate Number One just released, uh, well, it's been out in Canada for a while. It's, uh, it's on Super Channel, uh, right. which is, you can either get it on Super Channel through your TV provider, or that can actually be an add-on channel through Amazon Prime. Yep. Uh, they also just uh, combined with Apple TV now, so I believe you can get it on Apple oh, TV perfect. in Canada. And uh, Super Channel is awesome. I know a lot of people, some people might not know Super Channel, but they're great because they facilitated the making of all of these docs. Like they've been a a big part of Canadian filmmaking. So they're always awesome to plug. Uh, And then outside of that in the States now, we're, we 
signed our first big studio thing. So we're on with uh, Universal and we're on all digital platforms uh, aside from Netflix, basically. So uh, we're in, uh, you know, Amazon, Apple, um, Google Play, all those types of, and, you know, a million other ones. So you can see us uh, on, on those platforms in the U.S. and around the world. And then currently, um, we've been halted by COVID-19, but we're going to be in the process of uh, shooting the life journey of uh, sometime Mr. Olympia, uh, Phil Heath, kind of an ode back to the type of documentary that was done with um, the Arnold one way nice. back in the day. Oh, Pumping Pumping Iron. Iron? Cool. So yeah, but cool. it's, uh, it's basically this one's going to, uh, it's looking at the life of uh, Phil Heath. So that, that's going to be an interesting journey when we can actually get back to shooting his story. So. Perfect. Cool. We'll, we'll keep that's an eye out at. for that. We'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, and so the last thing, just to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, so we, like, we, <laughs> we like to let our guests uh, select our, our next doc for the next episode. So if you have a favorite uh, doc that you've watched that uh, you think we should watch and our uh, listeners would love to, to hear about, uh, Throw it out there, and we'll we'll listen to it. Uh, Ooh, something interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go, Errol Morris. Uh, Mr. Death uh, is the documentary. Perfect. It's called. Mr. It is Death. awesome. Uh, he's one of the best documentary makers uh, on the planet, and uh, that one in particular is about the guy who was uh, he was basically creating all of the. Uh, death equipment for um, the uh, basically uh, you know when when there was a, you, you were given the death sentence he was figuring out whether it was the electric chair or the chemicals that were used uh, or the hanging of the people and then what happens is partway I won't tell you too much but partway through the story it takes this insane twist in what this guy becomes involved in a bigger bigger kind of story but uh, he opens that a guy's a master filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you'll, you'll see. It's, it's interesting. It's an older film, so I, I, you cool, might be back awesome. in SD again, unfortunately, for their boys, but uh, it's, it's, right. it's well worth a watch. Perfect. Very good That's one. That's great. Well, we appreciate you joining us. It's uh, yeah, a it's pleasure awesome. uh, to to get to talk to you, and uh, like I said, it's it's always nice to talk to a, a fellow Canadian uh, who's uh, who's into filmmaking. Yeah, and thank you guys for uh, supporting uh, Canadian filmmakers and just filmmakers in general. And uh, I can tell just even from our conversation, I had to look at some of your stuff before, and you guys are going to go somewhere with this. You're, you're doing everything right, and you seem like awesome, awesome people, and uh, and you're doing it for all the right reasons. And I see nothing but success. Probably talk to you again down the road, and uh, you guys will be on a whole new platform and level with what you're doing with us. But uh, it's cool to be there at the start and, and going to see you guys progress with us. We're hoping so. Thank you very <laughs> yes, much. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Yeah. Okay. Have a great day, guys. Yeah, Take care. Bye. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, that was us talking to Brett Harvey. Great and, interview. Yeah. Oh, great guy. Fuck, that was a lot of fun. That was awesome. Great um, stuff. We just need to have like a Brett Harvey month or something. Oh, I know, watch yeah. all of his documentaries. Yeah. Mm. Listen, to, I mean, that would work perfectly for a month. We should have done this next week at the beginning of August. Shit. Four well, documentaries, well. four weeks. That's what you get for figuring things out as you record. I know, right? You have production <laughs> meetings before. Yeah. So, oh, well. Um, Brett touched on a couple other uh, 
films he's done. Uh, yeah. So the follow-up to this one, which was uh, The Culture High, mm-hmm. basically kind of just an expanded... Uh, yeah, they talked to a lot more celebrities. Yeah. Especially like Snoop Dogg, Wiz Khalifa, Richard Branson. Right. More of Joe Rogan. Uh, okay. More... Yeah. I think more other comedians too, but... Yeah. Yeah. So Culture High was uh, an expanded uh, kind of follow-up to, to this. Mm-hmm. And like you said in the, in the interview, like he... He didn't want to make another pot doc, yeah. Um, but he just had so many people email him, like, yeah, because so everything's more. changed. So like, there yeah. was such a rapid change. And I mean, I think that would still be for legalization. Yeah. yeah. So that was mm. building up to that. Yeah. And then Ice Guardians, like I remember, I think I saw a while ago, but it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Just about enforcers, and it's another thing of like, yeah, that's fucking crazy that yeah. that's someone's job. Right. Well, so like, holy fuck! One of the guys profiled in uh, in Ice Guardians is Brian McGratton, who used to play for the Ottawa Senators, which is uh, my favorite team. Um, so yeah, uh, that's another so one. So this is like a direct personal link to you. Yeah, that's another one I have to watch. <laughs> I, and I think right. I've, I've heard of it before. Yeah, it's um, older. Yeah, I knew yeah. I knew it's around, but mm. I just I've never. The image on the front's cool as fuck. It's like yeah. a. I think it might be a drawing, but it's a guy that kind of looks like a gladiator and he's yeah. like looking down at his skates. You're just like, oh, nice. that's fucking crazy. And yeah. then, uh, oh, sorry. Oh, I was, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if it's in our jar. Ice Guardians. I, I don't think so. I'm not sure. Or, uh, Culture High. I feel like Culture High might be. Yeah. I, I think I remember seeing that name. Um, yeah, I'm excited it, to watch that. If one. not, yeah, I'll yeah. check it up on our, our list of docs that's yeah. in there. And then his newest one is uh, his inmate number one, which is fucking fantastic. Yeah, we'll that's the to, Danny Trejo yeah. biopic. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, we if, haven't watched it yet, but Tyler like, has, so we'll, yeah. we'll have to check it out. Like everyone said, like everybody knows who Danny Trejo is, even if you don't know his name. It's mm-hmm. the scary-looking Mexican guy with tattoos that's yeah. in every movie yeah. or show. Like he's like. Breaking Bad. Um, Dude, he's in fucking Spy Kids. Sons of Anarchy. Like, and what yeah. the fuck? So I was working at a movie theater when Spy Kids came out. <laughs> no, and, no. <laughs> like, just like, yeah. So it talks about in, um, like, after it gets to his, uh, like, Hollywood years, um, about how much, like, for a guy that's not actually classically trained in, in mm-hmm. acting, uh, one of the movies he's in uh, is called Sherry Berry. Uh, which is like a full dramatic role. He doesn't play the bad guy. He plays the good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you know. Is it a lead role? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I think or he's like a supporting actor. Like he's he's one of the two leads. Damn. Um, so I think. The, the main drive. Yeah. One of the main drives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fuck, dude. So it's like a full dramatic where he's like he's the nice guy trying to help this woman who just got out of prison, has some uh, addiction uh, um, uh, troubles. It's not like Black Snake Moan where. Samuel just chains Brittany Murphy to a radiator. No, yeah, <laughs> that's his. That's his rehab. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's the one being nice to her and helping her, right? Whereas you know, every other movie he plays like this badass, yeah. like killer, well, in Spy criminal. Kids, he's a good guy, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, and so his his other movie where he's like number one build, uh, which was Machete. Yeah, uh, like he was the star of it. Yeah, uh, there's a little. Um, clip of him interviewed in the uh the documentary where you know because that had a ton of good actors robert de niro was in it um steven seagal uh was in it michelle rodriguez like jessica so it had two good actors and then steven seagal i mean (laughs) but i mean as far as star no i get yeah i get what you're saying yeah 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 um and he's like so there's a scene where he kills steven seagal he says i'm the first person to ever kill steven seagal oh fuck yeah that's (laughs) awesome yeah, that's but, so sick. But so Robert De Niro's in it, and he says like, you know, coming from his trailer, and like, 
Robert De Niro's trailer is right beside him and they come kind of face to face. And all he wants is, oh, hi, Mr. De Niro. Can I get you a coffee or something? And Robert De Niro looks at him and goes, you're, you're number one build. Like, you're you're, yeah. you're the star here. And he's I like, should ask just, you, bro. Yeah, just kind of like dumbfounded that he's first build over. Uh, be like, yo, you're De Niro. Yeah, like, over Robert De Niro. What the fuck? Yeah. Imagine if he just like doubled down. He's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Taxi driver sucked. Double, like, double, bitch. Coming, coming from a guy who like his first movie role was completely accidental. Like, yeah. it, like mm. I'm not going to ruin the story. You got to mm. fucking watch it. It's, Dude, it's just so fucked up. Because like watching something like that or hearing a story like that is, it somewhat enrages me that someone that had like a decent life that is an actor that is like, oh my God, this acting thing is tough. Or they're an asshole to yeah. people. And I'm like, this guy has all the rights to be assholes to everyone. Yeah. And like, he's the coolest guy ever. Well, and like Brett said, he doesn't care about the fame. Yeah. He, like he still lives in the neighborhood he grew up yeah. in. Yeah. Like what a cool fucking like, guy. He's he, probably still friends with kids that he was friends with when yeah. he was like. He just wants to work. Like, so in the documentary, he's has 365 uh, roles uh, on IMDb. Jesus Christ. And in the movie, he talks about how he looked up to John Wayne and, uh, is one it going to be Genghis Khan? Because that'd be a tight movie. One of his uh, one of his good friends uh, was um, oh geez, I'm going to forget his name now. Um, um, Eddie Bunker. Uh, so when after Danny Trejo got so many credits to his name, like uh, Eddie Bunker's widow, like texted his kids and was mm -hmm. like, "Hey guys, have you seen how many credits uh, Danny has to his name? Like, there's we don't look up to." John Wynn anymore. We look up to Danny Trejo. Like, because like, oh. Danny, like, he's probably a better person, too. I think probably, there's oh, yeah. a lot of quotes where John Wynn wasn't the nicest guy in the world. But yeah, like, uh, um, Danny says that John Wayne was like his idol growing up, and like, now, uh, you know, he played Genghis Cone. He's, he's one of the hardest working yeah. guys in, in Hollywood yeah. for sure. Yeah. And he seems like the most genuine, nicest guy. Do they talk too. to his agent? Like he's had the same agent for a long time? No, or I, I feel like anyone that you're in business with, like with him, they're like, oh, we're in this for a long time. So the people they, they interview is Michelle Rodriguez. Okay. She was in uh, Machete with yeah. him. Um, who else? They interview uh, Donald Logue. Okay. Uh, he, Did they interview Quentin Tarantino at all? No. No? So he. Donald Logue was, uh, oh shit, I forget the TV. He was on a sitcom. Okay. He was in Sons of Anarchy. He played like a crazy uh, uh, DE agent, like a ex DE okay. agent. Sure, if I. Uh... He's in the new, like in the, not new, uh, but Gotham. Okay. The, the Batman show. He's like, yeah, okay. he's Harvey Bullock. Okay. Yeah. But cool. Canadian as well. He cool. was born in Ottawa. Sweet. Um, who else? They interviewed Cheech Marin. Yeah, cool. Um, he's cool. His bodyguard. Cheech Marin's bodyguard? No, uh, oh. Danny Trejo's bodyguard. Oh, I was like, why would... Who was in prison when he shot one of his first uh, movies, oh. um, Blood In, Blood Out, in the prison. That, wait, he shot it in the prison? Yeah, yeah. So it was filmed in San, at San Quentin. And then that's how the bodyguard got... I don't know if that's how oh. he met him, but he was in so, there when they filmed damn. it. Yeah. And uh, like Danny Trejo spent time in basically every single prison. For in, drugs or for like crazy shit? Uh, it was like robbery, oh. uh, yeah, like armed robbery. Oh wow, that's crazy! He didn't yeah. get put away for like ye like years because yeah. it was violent crime. Yeah, wow. Um, but yeah, crazy story and the way uh, it's told in the documentary and uh, the cinematic shots is is really well done. Cool. Yeah. Well, we can't wait. 
Yeah. So and then the next, uh, our dog for next week. Yeah, uh, Mister Death. He picked yeah. it. Yes. Okay. So Tyler and I were looking it up when you were in the washroom, Christian, and the tagline was, "What, what was it exactly?" So uh, it is a. Oh, it was a theatrical uh, expose on the guy who created like all the ex uh, execution tools, who is also a Holocaust denier. Oh. So I, th I think that's, I feel like that's the twist uh, uh, Brett was talking how about. How the fuck, how the fuck, is he going to be like, all right, I'm really efficient at killing people. By the way, the Nazis didn't do anything. Yeah. No, like, Dude, he'll what? be like, the Nazis didn't what? kill anybody and here's how they could have done it better. <sighs> and then, <laughs> um, no, I have no idea. I know. Yeah. But, like, I, I, he has That's a German-sounding name, so I feel oh, like maybe... Oh, dude, I, I think you have to be German to say that the Holocaust didn't happen because I think everyone else in the world is like, yeah, for sure oh, that happened. Well, I, there's, oh, no there's way. Some it's other... mostly Americans. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? That are Holocaust deniers? Yeah, oh, it's mostly Americans. There's, there's a lot of uh, yeah. non-Germans. Yeah. Well, I guess, okay, I might take that back because I feel like Germans, <laughs> they could see the direct results. So yeah. they're like, no, that shit happened. Yeah. yeah, I guess Mel Brooks is... Or not Mel Brooks. Uh, Mel Gibson's dad was... I'm pretty sure a Holocaust denier. Yeah. yeah. That's well, something yeah. To, that's a crazy thing to hang your hat on. But so we will be watching uh, uh, Mr. Death from Errol Morris uh, next week. Sweet. Sounds Excited like another uplifting one. I, you know, I always, I I don't think this one's going to be entirely sad per se. Oh, it doesn't sound I like it's he's gonna a humanitarian. Be, well, no, but I think it's like, whereas, you know, um, some of the documentaries on racism, it's just like, it's mm. gut wrenching, right? Yeah. But just um, that, like having someone figure out like the best way to kill people. Yeah. yeah. Like, dude, yeah. how the fuck are like someone married you? It, it's going to be, it's going to be more yeah. interesting than, than upsetting. I think. Yeah. 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 This isn't going to be like, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm not going to be, it was just like, wow, this God. one guy has yeah. the most fucked up view. Yeah. It'd also be funny if he's like, I think humans are inherently beautiful. And he's like a super positive, nice yeah. guy, but like, I kill criminals. Yeah. Like, we're Whoa. just going to turn this camera on Jesus for the next 20 Christ. years. Like, just do you. Your whole I mean, life yeah. is fucking so complicated. What the hell is going on? I really, uh, I really like uh, when we get recommendations from other documentary filmmakers. Yeah, like, uh, I think Dylan Reeve from Tickled uh, uh, was the one who recommended Three Identical Strangers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And that was fantastic. Fuck, what mm -hmm. a show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, he gave us a bunch. Yeah. So now I'm I'm uh, excited for this one. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll, it's a uh, cool little thing. It's like one of my favorite parts about uh, having a guest on. Yeah. Like, so picking it out of the jar, like we don't, we don't know what it's going to be, but right. when they say like, we really have no fucking idea. Yeah. So, and yeah. we haven't had anyone that like, oh, we've already watched that or right. like, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's cool. Um, I don't know if we'll get to talk to him. Mr. Morris. He's in his seventies. I'm sure he's enjoying retirement. Um, but uh, we'll see if we can reach out to him. Do you think he's got Twitter? Uh, we'll see. Why not? Let's we'll look it up. We'll send right. the birds his way. In the spirit of the past, let's kill this thing. <laughs> Perfect. Aww. Thanks for listening, guys.